0: I've never been in trouble in my life i didn't even have a parking ticket i didn't, you know what i mean i i was brought up like cops are the, the good guys
1: i didn't know what was going to happen but i do know that everything was stacked against me everything like everything
2: this isn't supposed to happen this way i'm innocent i know i'm innocent i know i had nothing to do with this
1: how is this possible i grew up trusting the systems i grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me.
0: Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still
3: broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me.
4: Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000.
0: And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast.
4: Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little
5: optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine,
0: hosted by me, Danielle Robey, And me, Simone Boyce.
3: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I have, that's me, but today I have an extraordinary treat uh, for me and for you, the audience. Um, My guest today is Sadhguru, and Sadhguru is an internationally renowned yogi and mystic, a teacher of meditation, a New York Times best-selling author, and a man who has done fantastic work in prisons all over the world, teaching meditation and enlightenment to people um, who most needed, I think you could say. So Sadhguru, welcome to the show.
8: Thank you for having me here.
3: So this is so exciting because the idea of being able to explore this aspect of the mind and the you know, the the mind inside the prison and, and how to transcend these most terrible circumstances, which I've heard you talk about in videos. It's something that I think can help people both on the inside and the outside, family members as well, but everybody. So I'm really interested in knowing how you how you got started, first of all, on this journey, and even more so how you became interested and involved in taking this practice inside the prison walls. So this is
8: almost uh, twenty-seven, twenty-eight years ago, I think twenty-eight years ago. There was a ladies' club in Coimbatore City where we are located now, and they invited me to speak in that ladies' club. This is, uh, you know, a group of maybe two hundred very elite uh, women of the town. (laughs) So, uh, I was talking to them and uh, just outside their uh, club building, there's a nice tree, we were sitting under the tree and I was speaking to them. Then I saw this big wall, which is uh, nearly twenty feet tall wall. I looked at the wall and said, why such a big wall here? And the fantastic thing is, none of them knew. Then I just enquired with the volunteers that were around me, they said, "Uh, this is the prison. It is in the heart of the city and there's a prison, these ladies, their club, the... you know, one part of their club is touching the wall and they don't know it's a prison. And then I discovered the road, the main road in the city is called Jail Road. Jail Road. Yes. Then I said, I would like to meet those people who are on the other side of the wall, I would like to do something with them, I would like to see who are they. Then we discovered uh, the superintendent of the prison was somebody who was known to me. Uh Then I tried to put an application saying that I would like to come and do something.
3: So you were breaking into the prison?
8: Yes. (laughs) Breaking into the prison is not easy. It took me over two years to get inside. I did not have the qualifications. (laughs)
3: And and what was your application when you were saying Uh, that I want to go inside because... Because
8: uh, I said I would like to do something with these prisoners and see who they are. Then I discovered there were over uh, f- uh, fourteen-hundred prisoners inside. I said, fourteen-hundred people, what are they for? It doesn't matter. My work is with human beings, it doesn't matter where they are, so let's go. So when I went inside or when I tried to get inside, they <laughs> put me through some three interviews, whether I am fit enough to go to the prison or not. and. Uh, They've said, Sadhguru, don't waste your time here, these guys, you just can't do anything with them. Every Sunday, some Christian priest comes, all they do is mischief, and Friday, some Islamic guys are coming, no good. And on other festival days and other things, the Hindu people are coming, it's no good. Nothing, you can't teach them anything, you can't do anything with them, all they understand is... Just beating, punishment, this is all. You don't waste your time here.
3: Well, let me ask you, this prison, was this considered a maximum security prison? It, you... is, it is. And so the people there are mostly in for murder or uh, violent crimes?
8: Nearly… Uh, nearly uh, probably 600 to 700 of them are for murder, but largely long-term prisoners. Long-term means in India anything over Uh, eight years is considered long-term prison. So uh, I said, give me a chance, let me just talk to them. It took me little over two years to convince them that they should let me in. So when we went in, uh, there were uh, twelve wards, you know. In each ward uh, there is something like hundred and thirty to hundred and forty. So we picked a ward which had over two hundred prisoners, the largest ward, And this is, uh, everybody has come there for life imprisonment. This means they have done either murder or more. So, uh, I said, let me do this. So, they put full security, armed police, I said, take them out. They're not going to harm me anything, just take them out, it's not a problem. They said, no, we cannot do that. Uh, Anyway, there were some policemen. Then I asked them to gather outside. They all came looking at me, okay, what is this guy going to do with us? So we just arranged a small game and started playing the game with them.
3: So okay, so it's you and 200. Yes, 200 uh, hardened, 215
8: criminals, Hmm. criminals. hardened and softened. I don't know, Hmm. but all of them are there for murder or more. So we started playing a game, and they got so involved, like little children. They screamed and yelled, and they played the game full on for about an hour. Then I stopped and then for about half an hour, I because they gave me only two hours, maximum two hours you have to leave the prison. So then I spoke to them for half an hour and told them, see this is what I wish to do, all of you guys should write to the authority, uh, to the superintendent that you want this program for you. You won't believe. When I had to leave at the end of two hours, at least sixty percent of them were all in tears, They're saying, you don't go, you stay with us. So seeing this, then they allowed me to conduct a program. The first program I did, it was a ten day thing, two hours every day, ten days. So I sought permission to stay inside the prison. I said, let me stay there ten days with them so that they feel I'm there really wanting to do something with them, not just for cosmetic purposes. I couldn't get that permission because there were some militants. Um, In India they're called terrorists, so some of the terrorists were imprisoned in that prison, they said, no, we can't let you stay there. But every day I went there, my thing was only for two hours, but I went there, served meal to them, participated with them, in their break times I was there. We participated in all activity in the prison, in that ward, where these prisoners were there.
3: Hold on, I want to back up a second, so you would go in and even the first time, you said you'd play a game, what kind of a game? Oh, uh, we
8: just played simple games, we have uh, certain games like dodgeball and that kind of stuff. two hundred people? Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> <That> sounds insane. <laughs> Rollicking fun <laughs> we had. So every day in the two-hour program, ten days we had, about half an hour to forty-five minutes was just games. Then we taught them some simple process of yoga and spoke to them on a variety of things. The kind of transformation it brought about there, this prison on that day had hundred and thirty-six years of history. It was during the British era that it was set up as a maximum security prison. In this one thirty-six years, every day, literally every day, someone was always in the solitary. The solitary in that prison is like a four by four box, four feet by four feet steel box. They… you can only sit, you can't stand up. Jesus. So in that they put you for a week, ten days like this. But after we did the program, after we did three programs, I think, nobody went into the solitary. For uh, more than two years, not a single person entered the solitary. That's the kind of difference it made. And uh, they burst forth into poetry, most of them are school dropouts or many of them illiterate, but they all burst out into poetry, writing poems. We have over three to four thousand poems uh, which is being released. Uh, in India, as a part of uh, this, uh, this program we called as Inner Freedom for the Imprisoned.
3: Inner Freedom for the Imprisoned, yes. that's great. I must tell
8: you this, there was one guy, his name was Shanmugam. I think uh, he's been executed now. He was there for three murders, which he committed in the courtroom. He killed three people in the courtroom. Wow. So, uh, that is a kind of crime you can't get away. In the courtroom, when you do it, it's considered the worst thing.
3: Uh, well, and it's pretty hard to… yeah, yeah. I mean, it's… <laughs> <laughs> what can in you say? It's part of the judge. I mean, it's… <laughs> so, uh, it's yeah. Ju- your well, judge
8: is the eyewitness, so…
3: <laughs> yeah, it's, you're pretty much done there.
8: Yes. So, he wrote a poem which, you know, brought the entire uh, prison into tears and just about anybody who reads that poem, he just said… He… he was… he's been in the… on the death row for about seven years by then, Every time in the evening, see daytime is quite okay in the prison, from morning six to evening six, it's fine. Sunset, everybody goes into the cells and the cell door closes. Normally in India, it's a eight by five cell, three people will be there. That is when all all kinds of horrors begin. One thing the prison psychologist told us is, every day in the night, in their sleep, people are howling like animals. One simple thing that happened with the simple meditation process we brought is, people first sharing is, they are sleeping peacefully. All these sounds and yellings stopped. And this guy wrote a poem, every day when the cell door closes, I thought this was my grave. But now this has become my Bodhi tree. If the cell door closes, you know the Bodhi tree, where Buddha got enlightened. When the cell door closes, I close my eyes and I am in a different world altogether. This has become my Bodhi tree, he wrote this poem in Tamil in the local language. So like this there we've seen many many fantastic uh, transformational stories. See, the law has its ways, I mean it's not for me to suddenly ask for a change in law or something because you have to maintain law and order in a country, there are many issues. But no matter where a human being is, actually Everywhere they call it a correction center, but there is no room for correction. In fact, people who go to prison for short stints and come, they become really hardcore criminals when they come out, at least that's true in India. So when they go in they may be just petty criminals, when they come out they become serious level of crime.
3: Right, that's a generalization here, I shouldn't say that, but it does happen because it's logical and also when we… people here come out, they come out with a stigma mm. of having been incarcerated. It's harder to get a job and it's harder, you know, they, if they had… whatever. They also problems, come out with skills. Right. Yeah, yeah they may learn criminal skills. Yes. But I want to say too, just to… not to interrupt your flow here, but Today is it, is a particularly uh, interesting day for you to be here because as we were discussing before today is the day when Washington state abolished the death penalty becoming That's the, wonderful. the 20th state in America to to do so and ho- so hopefully we'll get all 50 because it's preposterous that we and it's it's disgusting that we as a country still execute people. It's also the eve of and you brought this up You know, we call it correctional, as you said, but it's just punitive. All all we do is punish people. I mean, there are some little programs here and there, but they've been cut back and cut back and cut back, Um, which, of course, is crazy, too, because the more we invest inside the prisons in helping people to better themselves and to advance themselves spiritually, as you do, or educationally, or whatever it is, um, the better chance they have of not reoffending and becoming productive citizens and paying taxes and, and not uh, causing problems on the outside. And to that end, today, uh, uh, tomorrow, a group is going um, of, of about 30 correction officials. My friend Dan Slepion is going with them uh, to tour prisons in Scandinavia and parts of Europe to see how they do it there, because there they focus on rehabilitation and they do it right. So, by and large. So, hopefully that… some of those practices will be brought back here, but I think it's… it's exciting that there is some progress and some momentum, more more than any time since I've started working on this twenty-five years ago, for… for this type of change.
8: See, of all the things, the most important thing is uh, that one who is imprisoned learns to handle his condition in a healthy manner within himself.
3: Mm-hmm. Please explain.
8: My work is essentially... See, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you are in New York City or in India or in Africa, you are a prisoner, you are a politician, you are a musician, it doesn't matter who you are. Essentially, every human being has the right to be joyful and peaceful. Outside conditions in our lives, What the world throws at us is not always determined by us, but what we make out of it within ourselves is entirely ours, hundred percent. So to empower people like this, whether they're inside the prison, outside the prison, because those who are outside the prison doesn't mean they're living joyfully. Many of them suffer more than the prisoners.
1: apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast that's right
6: something that makes me crazy is when people say well i had this career before but it was a waste and that's where the perspective shift comes that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now this is she pivots
8: where I personally worked, after that we trained teachers and now in the last twenty-three years, it's become a mandatory program in Southern Indian prisons. What I saw was, see, uh, when you go into the prison, it's a pretty organized place. Your food comes on the dot, your, <laughs> your door… Open, somebody opens doors for you, shuts it for you. <laughs> I'm saying it's a very organized place. Lot of people aspire for that in their lives and it never happens. The only problem is I've never been into these prisons either in India or in United States and come out without tears in my eyes simply because there is pain in the air. This is how important freedom is for a human being. There is nothing else, food is on time. In fact, people who are living in prison are far fitter than those people who are living outside. They're very physically fit. They're well-fed, everything. Only thing is there's no freedom. And how much it hurts a human being is unbelievable. There's simply pain in the air. If you just breathe that air, you you know, tears well up in your eyes, not because I think of something emotional about them. Simply the very atmosphere is full of pain. This is how significant freedom is for a human being. If you just take away that one thing, how much pain and how much... uh, damage it does to a human being in a very profound way is unbelievable.
3: Well, and I I do want to say in America, of course, we have, you know, uh, conditions in the prisons, in many prisons that are really terrible and that does extend to the food. Yes, you get three meals a day, but the food is… can be rotten, it can be… it's certainly not nutritious um, and, you know, it is something that I, I think there's, there's disease-prone, uh, uh, you know, because of the, the quality and the, and the substance that they're being fed. Uh, so I don't want to sugarcoat that, but you are absolutely correct. It no, is
8: I'm not saying they're getting the best food. I'm saying…
3: Regular food, yeah.
8: Regular, they're never hungry, food is given to them, and they're healthy because they're fit, they kept themselves fit inside the prison. I'm not trying to elogize a prison. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to point out, just because freedom is taken away, how much it hurts a human being. Yeah, I think that's,
3: that's a very good point. And it's interesting, too. I'm reading a book now. Um, I'm almost finished with this book by Anthony Ray Hinton called The Sun Does Shine. Um, and it's his story of spending 30 years on death row in Alabama for a crime he didn't commit and how he was able to escape from his, uh, you know, taking his, his own mind and using it to escape from this 5 by 8 uh, cell that he was trapped in. Um, it's quite extraordinary. And I think that he, like a lot of people, found some variation of the principles that you teach um, on his own because it was the only way that he could survive this uh, unbelievable ordeal. Seeing so many of the people around him executed, uh, smelling that smell of death and all the other deprivations uh, of death row it's, it's quite remarkable, and to me, I get so much um, inspiration and, and um, gratitude from being around uh, these extraordinary individuals who have persevered through these impossible conditions and found, like I said, through you know, necessity or desperation or inspiration or some combination thereof again, some variation of the very things that you are able to bring inside. And I want to turn to that too, because you've done work in prisons in America as well. And how did that happen?
8: Um, When I came to uh, Nashville, because we kind of centered around Nashville, I visited this old prison from the uh, kind of colonial times and they took me into this place where… where the executions happen. Just the… just the energy that the stones around, the stone walls have absorbed and still exude, is so terrible. So right there I decided we need to go into the prisons and do something. But we didn't get permission in Tennessee, so we went to Kentucky, and then we came to Pennsylvania, these are two which allowed. But then I found uh, that there was lot of resistance from religious groups and others for any yoga or anything to come in, they openly argued with me, we have put them in prisons because we want them to suffer, we don't want you to have them blissed out (laughs) There was lot of resistance and struggle. So we have not done much in the last few years in America, but in India it continues.
3: Yes, it's. It's. I'm glad you brought that up too, because I, I'm trying to remember a friend of mine who uh, I met, an acquaintance several years ago, had been teaching uh, yoga and meditation in prisons in America, and was so successful um, in terms of the results being like what you described in India, where the violence, the rates of violence inside the prisons plummeted, right? The infractions of the prisoners, every aspect of it, just was so much better, the inmate on inmate violence, inmate inmate to guard, vice versa, everything just was so much better, of course, so they canceled the program, right? And it's really remarkable, you know, we there's a case that I'm involved with now, and this is how crazy our system is in America, in uh, South Dakota, where, and you brought this to mind, a guy, his last name is Rimes, uh he was sentenced to death by a jury who said that they sentenced him to death instead of life because he's gay. And they felt that sentencing him to life in prison would entitle him to a life of enjoyment because he would enjoy being in there amongst the presence of other men because he's gay. Um, Now, this is such an outrageous and terrible thing for anyone to say, and the idea that it's allowed to stand in this country is almost like the jury was committing a hate crime. Um, so many of us are working now, including people at the Innocence Project, on trying to get clemency from the governor, um, because it's, 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 it's an extreme version of what you were talking about, the idea that we sit there and say, well, we don't want there to be any joy of any kind or any, and and you contrast it with places like Norway, right? Where in Norway... The guards are trained for two years. My understanding is that only 10% of the ones who apply actually are accepted. They're trained in psychology, they're trained in conflict resolution, they're trained in all types of different protocols. And when people are brought to the prison, the warden gives a speech where he says something along the lines first of all, the guards sing a song, and then and some people listening are going to say, "Well, this is outrageous. This is too much. We can't do that. It's too nice, or whatever, whatever." But this is the way they do it over there. And the warden says, makes a speech and says something like, "Well, I recognize that you're people, you're human beings like me, and when you come out, you might be my neighbor. Therefore, I want to treat you as my equal and treat you as you know with dignity, so that when you are done with your sentence, so the you'll intention. come
8: out." And, the intention of correction is very alive. That's what it means.
3: Yes. Over there, it's a very, very... And in Germany, it's true, too, where they have... Uh, the, the cells have locks, but they lock from the inside. You know? How, how different is that, right? What a simple change. They lock from the inside, so you That's could have privacy. huh?
8: That's a home when you lock from
3: inside. It's a home. I mean, you don't want to be there, right? I don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. No, no right-minded person wants to be there. But at least, again, it provides a certain level of dignity that allows for… and it's quite opposite from that the way poem, we do it that here. That poem… that
8: poem that he wrote about, every time the cell door closed it felt like my grave, in that he describes the clang of the bolt. When they damn the door and clang, crack, they lock it. He, he… he… he always thought it's his death knell, you know, when he heard that sound, he thought life is over every day. It's it's just the way somebody locks the door from outside. If you could lock it from inside, it's a world of difference.
3: (laughs) It's a world of difference, and again, the recidivism rates in these countries are so much lower than ours, partially because of the fact that these people are treated as human beings when they go there, and you know here, and of course, I, I do want to touch on this too, and I'm interested in your take on this because in America, we treat people with mental illness as pariahs um, and we lock them up instead of treating them for the syndromes that they suffer from now I'm not saying that if someone's mentally ill and they go and kill you know people that they shouldn't be punished in some way um, but uh, and I like you believe in a system of law and order I do think we need a justice system we need to be a free society but we also have everyone is is entitled to be safe um, so but it is Incredible that we lock people with mental illness up in these prisons at the numbers that we do. The, the estimates uh, of the number of people who suffer from a diagnosable medical, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a recognizable mental illness that are incarcerated in this country I think it's something like 35% of the inmates in this country have this. And so, and those people are damned to an even more dire fate because of the fact that they can't obey the rules, right? So they're constantly being punished on top of their punishment because they're not mentally able to sometimes understand or go along with due to whatever it might be schizophrenia or whatever they have. And so they end up in the hole or they end up in these you know, the, the shoe or even worse conditions. And of course, all that does is exacerbate their mental illness. So, what is your… I mean, do you have any insight into this?
8: See, um, the thing is in the defense system of when people want to… lawyers want to defend their clients of uh, very terrible crimes that have been committed, the first step that they take is mental disorder, because it's the easiest way to get away. So, I think even those who make judgments, either a judge or jury system in America, it's very hard for them to really decide for sure which is real mental illness, which is not. Because every one of us, if we are willing, if we push ourselves a little bit, we can cross the line of sanity and behave in a certain way. Lot of people do, under the uh, influence of alcohol or a drug, they act crazy today but tomorrow morning they may be fine. Having said that, when somebody is diagnosed with an illness, Treating him as a normal person and punishing him for those things is inhuman. But at the same time, the system might not have evolved to a place to handle such people well. There may be no systemic… in a country like America, you should be able to do it. In India, I'm saying, we don't have a systemic arrangement to be able to handle such people. But in being in all these prisons, being in uh, communic- no communication with various prison authorities, I've not heard of mental illness patients being there because usually they will be sent to uh, a mental uh, institution rather than keeping them in prison because prison is simply not equipped to handle those things. But we do not know how many people are there who have an ailment but who not been properly diagnosed as such and being treated as normal with punishments and stuff, it must be happening, I'm sure.
3: Yeah, in New York City, we don't have facilities for people in those conditions. We don't have the type of uh, treatment centers that you would associate with uh, what many people think is the greatest or one of the greatest cities in the world. I do. I grew up here. I love my city. But it's crazy that we have uh, have no ability to, to house these people in a secure but safe environment where they can be treated and and hopefully get the help that they need in order to overcome or 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 get you know some progress on these conditions that are afflicting them and so we put them into the criminal justice system where they are you know they're going to be uh, abused in ways that even uh, that are even worse than people who are mentally fit
8: for these situations, uh, for these individual sufferings and if it's also a systemic situation, one significant aspect is we've made a huge difference. The reason why it's mandatory now in southern India is because the difference it made to the people and how their behaviors changed. And many of them who were known to be little crazy and doing wild things inside the prison, all of them leveled out. Just taking yoga into the prisons can be a big thing. But when I say yoga, not the kind of yoga you're doing in the studios (laughs) in New York City. There is another dimension of yoga. If we take this dimension of yoga into prisons, if the right kind of people take it in with utmost uh, care, concern and compassion for the people inside, it can make a phenomenal difference. It has made a big, big difference in India. Uh, we're doing largely in southern India. There are other people who are doing in northern part of the India. And uh, without doubt, every prison has reported significant changes in the behavioral patterns and the amount of violence that was there in the prison because everything is settled. You know, hands are the first things which move in these people.
3: And how does this, how long does this particular, how many minutes a day do people need to devote to the this The practice, practice,
8: they just have to devote 21 minutes a day.
3: Twenty-one minutes yes. and uh, seven days a week. Yes, yes. And and the change is no seven days a week. Just every day. Every day. That's a good. <laughs> one. You can't that's carry seven days. Seven days <laughs> uh, every day. It's too much of a burden to carry. I agree. I, when I heard myself say that, I said, "Wow, that sounds like a lot." That you said every day. I was like, "Oh, that I could do." Um, it's like it's like AA, one day at a time, right? So um,
8: never days come in bunches at you. It only comes one at a time. Yeah, that's
3: that's a good. Line. Isn't it such a I don't, I wonderful?
8: Grace that creation never throws bunches of days at you. Suppose it came like a bunch of grapes, 25 days came at you at a time, what would you do?
3: Especially if it was like Wednesday, (laughs) Thursday and Monday at the same time or Sunday and Tuesday and Friday. It would be like so confusing, you know what I mean? (laughs) Nobody would know what to do. Then we'd have a metaphysical problem as well. So how can we full-time in America now? Not really. Most of the time?
8: No, I have uh, teams of people here, volunteers.
3: So, we need to figure out a way to work together to bring this um, teaching inside more prisons here and see if we can, you know… I think
8: this would work much better on East Coast and West Coast, but most of the work that we tried to do, we did it in the Midwest and uh, the levels of resistance. See, the… I think uh, when we attempted this also about eight, ten years ago, From then to now, I think the opinion of what yoga is has changed dramatically in America. People thought this is some religious practice from India. Now they understand it is a science of well-being. So I think that understanding has seeped into the society quite well now. So it should be much easier to do it now than when we attempted to do it here.
3: So, yeah, I mean, I would love to see if we can work on it in New York State, you know, there are But the good news is there are, as much as there's a lot of people in positions of power who are maybe closed-minded, there are also a lot of people who are open-minded and who want to improve the conditions. And it's better for everyone when we're able to do that. It's better for, uh, I think, everyone in that ecosystem of the prison, not just the inmates, right?
8: Even the closed-minded people, when they're very happy, they open the minds a little bit. Yes. So that is my thing. People, they were amazed. Sadhguru, how is it these criminals, they're all behaving so well with you, they're so happy with you. I said, this is all it is. If you keep a human being happy, he's a wonderful guy, always. If he's unhappy, he could be very nasty. That's different. That's true with everybody, isn't it?
1: apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast that's right
6: something that makes me crazy is when people say well i had this career before but it was a waste and that's where the perspective shift comes that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now this is she pivots
2: And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care and we'll see you there.
3: So 21 minutes a day, not bad. Um, It's It's a
8: way of to put it very simply, to put it technically, it's like this. See, all human experience has a chemical basis to it. What you call as stress, what you call as anxiety, what you call as tranquility, misery, joy, agony, ecstasy, everything has a chemical basis to it within the system. Now don't think about other chemicals in New York City. I'm talking about the chemistry in the body. (laughs) So every human experience has a, a chemical basis to it. Now, if you create a chemistry of blissfulness, You are blissful by your own nature. This is like a chemical soup. You are a chemical soup, actually, a very complex chemical soup. The question is only are you a great soup or a lousy soup. So, this is just about teaching people how to make a great soup out of yourself, that it tastes really wonderful from within. And when you're feeling wonderful, you're naturally wonderful to everything around you.
3: And how can people, so people are listening now, right? I'm sure they're wondering, how can I get involved with this? How can I, myself, I'm not in prison, I'm out and about doing whatever I'm doing. A lot of people are listening in their cars.
8: Those who are in prison, not by the government, but by their own nature.
3: (laughs) But but this practice, this magical, twenty, this is like a tease to people, right? They're listening now, they're going, where's this 21 minutes? How do I find these 20, what do I do? It's called inner
8: engineering. They must look it up. Inner engineering. Yes, inner engineering.
3: And there's YouTube videos and things yes, just so you yes. can learn, because I want to learn myself now, you know?
8: There's even a preparatory online
3: program. Uh-huh. And you can just pull it up and yes. start doing it right now. Yes, they can. I can envision people now driving to work and pulling over on millions, the side of the road. Millions probably. of
8: people across the world have done it. We are an organization which is completely run by volunteers. We have about 4,000... 4,600... Uh, full-time volunteers and over nine million part-time volunteers. It's all done by them.
3: Well, I mean, you might have nine million and one by the time we're finished with this podcast. Because I think <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's www.innerengineering.com, www.innerengineering.com. And I want to also say, I mean, I've, I've had the privilege of getting to know uh, so many people uh, who are either... Uh, Still on, uh, uh, inside prison, like Yen Suring, who is a those
8: a, those people that you have helped to come out, those who are wrongly incarcerated, and now you help them to come out. We would be privileged to conduct a special program for them if they are in one place somewhere.
3: Okay, fantastic. We're gonna, you know, what we're gonna do we will we'll, we'll organize that for the next Innocence Network conference where we're gonna have uh, approximately 200 people who are wrongfully convicted all gathering together. We
8: will um, do the program. We'll offer the program at our cost. We will whatever is needed for those people.
3: That would be wonderful and much appreciated, and we're going to make that happen. Um, but I was going to say, too, that I've had the privilege of getting to know some extraordinary people like Sunny Jacobs, who I was talking to you about before, who was sentenced to death, who taught herself these practices from things she remembered seeing on TV. And this was in the 70s when she was convicted, uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, and who got her, you know, who managed to maintain her sanity in her years in isolation on death row, by by using some similar you know techniques practices, and then there's a guy who I always think about, named Yen Suring, who's still in after 31 years in Virginia, who is a meditation uh, practitioner and a um, uh, a Tai Chi master, and I know he's teaching others in the in the prison that he's in uh, in Virginia the, some of these practices and uh, writing books about it and other things like that. So you know it's 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 out there and it's already percolating and you know it's helping people but it needs to be done on a much more uh, organized and more more organized
8: scale scale is important if you want to see the difference
3: that's the word I was looking for scale so I would love to see if we can start I mean for instance uh, I think New York State is a good place to start Um, we have um, some, some very good people in positions of Great authority inside the correction system, who I think would be very open-minded to this. Um, and I have a prison in mind right now, where my friend JJ Velasquez, John Adrian Velasquez, who's been on the show, mm-hmm. is still locked up in Sing Sing. And I think we're going to let's explore and see if we can bring this practice inside Definitely. there. They do a lot of wonderful things there, Voices from Within, and other programs that are uh, that are progressive, I would say. But this would be—I uh, uh, mean, there's so many good things that can come out of you being here and us starting this. This process now. Now it's interesting because you're such a uh, such an interesting and, and uh, inspirational man, and yet you are um, a victim of the same affliction as I am, which is called golf. So <laughs> <laughs> why why do you suffer? <laughs> uh, I don't suffer that
8: as an infliction. It's just that uh, I used to play a variety of games. I played a lot of field hockey when I was young. I played soccer. Being in India, I played cricket, I, I was… when I was in school, I was in some twelve disciplines of games. That's all I did, just sport, <laughs> most of the time. But about uh, seven, eight years ago, I was playing soccer with the kids and I tore my ACL and my left knee cartilage. So, after that injury, I was just sitting… I had an event and I was sitting at a dinner table and somebody brought one brand new tailor made golf kit and they said, uh, Sadhguru, it's time you play golf. You're too old for the other games. You time... It's time you understand this. The next day, I all packed up my knee. I went to the golf course, straight onto the course. I've never been to a driving range till now. I just went straight straight on the course and I hit the ball. It went straight. They said, it's amazing. I said, what's the big problem? It's a bloody sitting ball, huh? Eh? right oh, it's not moving. <laughs> He's not moving, it's a sitting ball. Any other game I played, the ball was coming at me at different angles, different velocities, different spins. Here it's sitting, what's a big deal about hitting it? So I never took a lesson, I never been on a range. Now I'm playing for a handicap of (laughs) (laughs) nine-ten
3: Not bad, (laughs) pretty amazing. You'd like gonna be the the successor to uh, Tiger Woods or something like that. We're gonna get you on the (laughs) tour. It's gonna be amazing. (laughs) Self-taught and everything else. Um, So, and I think we may uh, we may have to go out and and hit some balls together tomorrow. Um, I think the weather is gonna cooperate. So that's the plan, and I'm excited about that. We'll, We'll the ball will sit there and wait for us, and we will go out there and address it the properly. ball never
8: goes anywhere. It sits and waits.
3: Yeah, and it doesn't know who we are either <laughs> until we hit it. And it is amazing because when people ask me about golf and they say um, we're getting way off topic here, but people who don't play golf, they ask me why... Like, why do you do this? This is a waste of time, four hours, this, that, the other day. I go, well, first of all, you're out there in nature. It's beautiful. It's grass and water and trees and birds and air and whatever. It's just very nice, you know, nice day, whatever. You're with friends. It's social. But moreover, on those rare occasions when you actually hit a golf ball properly, and you can, the physics are the same in golf as other sports with balls, right? When you hit one side of the ball, it compresses, and then that energy has to go somewhere, so it explodes out the other side of the ball, and then the ball flies, and on that rare occasion when I have had the privilege of hitting it properly, you can actually feel that compression and it goes through the, the ball to the club into your hands and through your body into your soul and connects you to the center of the universe in Ooh, a way that is, woo,
8: woo, woo. that's my,
3: that's my <laughs> definition. I don't know. It does. Like I said, it happens maybe once every few rounds, but that shot. Is what I live for when I'm out there, you know. It's just such a great, amazing feel. And then, unlike other sports, you don't have to run. Nobody tackles you. Nobody, nobody hits you. Nobody's trying to take your ball. Huh? <laughs> you just go and walk and look and catch catch up with the ball and think a little bit what kind of shot. And it's a very nice uh, little breeze It's nice, nice, nice. So, hopefully, tomorrow we'll have that experience. I can't guarantee it, but we'll see it what happens. It freaks
8: people mainly because they got nobody to blame for no. the ball that went into the lake. They know it's them. That's true. That's what you see people freaking because they know if it's any other game, you can say the other guy did it. Here, there is nobody else. When the ball lands in the lake, you know it's just you. That's what makes them make people go
3: totally crazy. So there's a strong element of personal responsibility, is what you're hinting at there, which I I can see that. So, um, Sadhguru, before we close, um, I wanted to do the same thing I do when I'm uh, every more or less every episode, which is to ask my guest, uh, if, if I can just turn the microphone, uh, my microphone off. Um, and, and thank you again for being here and sharing your, um, your thoughts and your experience and your wisdom with, uh, with me and with the audience, and then, uh, just turn it over to you for any other ideas that you would like to share.
8: So this is something everyone should understand that everybody is some kind of a prisoner of their own making. Some, unfortunately, by the state, but rest by themselves. When I say prisoner, people have limited themselves in some way, they've drawn their own boundaries. The boundaries may be of gender, race or religion or ethnicity, or nationality, we've drawn boundaries that we cannot cross in our own minds, which is the basis of so much of suffering that's happening within human beings. So we need to understand this, as there is a science and technology for external well-being. When I say science and technology for external well-being, if you just look back and see, what is the level of comfort and convenience that people enjoyed a hundred years ago, and what is the level of comfort and convenience we are enjoying today? It's just unbelievable. No generation ever knew these kind of comforts and conveniences. So we should be the most joyful generation. But such a thing has not happened. Simply because we've fixed the outside too much, done nothing about our interiority. So as there is a science and technology for external well-being, there is a whole science and technology for inner well-being. You don't have to believe anything, you don't have to belong to any group. If you just learn a few things about how to manage your body, how to manage your thought process, your emotion and your energies, if these four dimensions, your body, mind, emotion and energy take instructions from you, you will live healthy, you will live blissed out and you will live a powerfully intense life. This is possible for every human being. When it comes to the outside action, No two human beings are equal. What we can do with our body, what we can do with our mind, no two human beings are equal. But when it comes to the inner dimension, all of us are equally capable. Such a thing has not happened to most people simply because they never paid attention to what is within. They thought by fixing the outside everything will be okay. You see the hammer and banging because they think by fixing the outside everything is going to be okay. We have more comfort and convenience than any generation ever had. In the history of humanity, we are the most comfortable generation ever, but we are almost complaining like neurotic complaint level, simply because we have not done anything about the inner nature of who we are. So, what we are referring to as inner engineering is this possibility. This is not only for people who are in some state of suffering or imprisoned or whatever, First and foremost thing is people in positions of responsibility and power must get this because if they don't break their limitations within themselves, if they don't erase the boundaries of their individuality, you, they cannot change the situation. They cannot bring about a new possibility. You have heard the word yoga, of course. The word yoga means union. The, yoga, the word yoga does not mean twisting and turning. Yoga means union, union means there is you and the universe. Right now if you look at individual human beings, their life is like it is you versus the universe. You versus universe is a stupid competition to get into. So yoga means consciously you erase the boundaries of your individuality where there is no you and the universe. You are a part of the universe in your living experience, not as an idea not as an intellectual process, not as an emotional process, but as a living experience, like you experience the ten fingers of your hand, you experience all life around you. If… if a human being is touched by this experience even for a moment, the very way you perceive, experience and express your life alters dramatically and that is what needs to happen, we are just doing… Cosmetic changes to human beings by teaching them morality, ethics, small changes in attitudes. This is not good enough. Only when you experience the other as myself, everything about you changes. This is what yoga means. This is what inner engineering means, in a
3: way. On that note, um, I want to thank you again for having me here.
8: In whatever way we can be useful for these people who have been unjustly punished by a society. We will do our best. Please call upon us whenever we are needed. Thank you.
3: I will be doing so, and thank you for that very kind and generous offer. And, and also
8: get ready to be beaten in the golf game tomorrow.
3: <sighs> oh boy! Uh, I thought we are one, and one is two, and the other one is together, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna be one with the universe. So okay, well, it's good to know that that doesn't uh, that doesn't extend all the way to the golf course. Uh, it stops at the entrance to the club. So um, anyway, uh, well, this has been a real treat for me don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts it really helps And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.
4: Old-school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000.
0: And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast.
4: Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright
5: Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And
6: me, Simone Boyce.